listening to sermons from South Point McDonough, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. As I was sitting in my office just a little bit ago, about 10.15, my seven-year-old walks into my office, and I was in there. Usually on Sunday mornings, I read through some Puritan prayers just to prepare my heart to stand and preach. And I spent time praying for you, just last minute, praying for myself, praying that we open the Word of God. <clears throat> and my seven-year-old, Kingston, he walks in, and he was just back here a minute ago with the kids singing. And he walked in, and he just, he didn't say, hey, Dad, are you, are you busy? Am I bothering you? Like, if you, if you don't do a good job, like, you can't keep your job. Like, you're not going to get paid. Like, he, he didn't say any of that stuff. He walked in. He didn't say a word. I looked up. I heard the door open. He just comes and crawls up and gets in my lap and just sat there. That was it. He just wanted to be with me. He didn't want anything from me. He, he didn't. I, I had a bag of Takis on my desk that he had seen earlier that morning, and he was stoked about those. He didn't even want the Takis that were sitting there. He didn't want a, a piece of gum. He just wanted to be with his dad. And it was so sweet. I didn't ask him anything. A few minutes later, somebody else walked in, and we had just been sitting there, just sitting. I'd just been holding him, and he was just curling up. That was it. And I think sometimes as we approach the scriptures and as we come to the gathering of God's people, we come with the perspective of what am I going to get out of this? Or what is God going to do for me? Or what can I learn? Or is what he's saying right? Or man, I'm so distracted by something else. And so I want us just for a moment, as we open the word of God and we look at these verses that Caleb just read for us, I want us to figure out what would hinder us from being with Christ this morning. Just for the next 30 or 40 minutes, we're going to look at these verses. And whatever that is, let's just name that thing in our hearts and in our minds. Ask the Spirit to reveal that to us. And let's ask the Spirit of God through the preached word and the presence of Christ, listening to the Father this morning, Let's just ask him to speak to us this morning through all the, the fogginess that clouds our minds, the things of this week that have happened or the things of this coming week that we may be anxious about, relationship issues, troubles, whatever those things are. And let's just ask the, the Lord to speak to us this morning through his word. And may we be reminded that he welcomes us in. He wants to just hold us. He wants to simply be with us. And so let's do that for just a moment. Even now, you can close your eyes. I want you to ask him to speak to you, to reveal himself, to reveal his love to you this morning.
Father, we say it often. Our greatest need is your presence. Jesus, I pray that you would provide that for us this morning. It's through the blood of Christ that we pray, amen. So all of us love a really good comeback story. Most comeback stories. There are some negative things that were just like, I wish those things would never come back. You know what I mean? Uh, Maybe like that 15 pounds that you had off up until summer started and vacation was here. Or maybe it's your mother-in-law. Or maybe it's the McDonald's McRib sandwich. I don't know what it is. But some things you're just like, this is not a good comeback. I don't understand. But then there are are so many things that we really enjoy a good comeback. And maybe it's a sports uh, team that you've loved that have now drafted somebody really good. Or maybe it's a, I was thinking last night, I asked my wife, I said, hey, what's a good comeback story? And she said, well, you should go do something with sports. You should know that. And I'm a big North Carolina basketball fan. And I thought, well, they were about 15 at the half against Kansas just a few months ago, and Kansas came back and won. That's not a good comeback story, but that's still a comeback story for a good one for somebody else. But maybe it's with a certain band that you loved years ago, and they've made a comeback. Or an actor. Uh, we were talking yesterday um, about, what's the guy's name? Nick Cage. Nick, Nicholas Cage. Yeah. And so earlier this week, me and my kids, we watched National Treasure. And that seemed to be the last good thing that he was in. That was almost 20 years ago. But now he keeps trying to make a comeback. and keeps trying to be, you know. And so we get the idea of a comeback story. And we love those, by and large. We love those comeback stories. So this morning, we're going to see a comeback story with one of the apostles. His name is Peter. And so we're kind of, we're looking at this next section of verses here in Luke chapter 22. And we're skipping a part right there in the middle that has to do with Judas and Jesus' betrayal. We're going to look at that next week. And so this week, we're looking at at, at Peter's betrayal of Jesus. And we're going to juxtapose that, compare, contrast it next week with Judas' betrayal. Okay, so that's what we're looking at today. So uh, Luke chapter 22, picking up in verse number 24. And we've been in Luke for several months. Uh, We'll finish it in about three or four weeks. And so uh, we've really loved being in the book of Luke. And like we said last week, this is the last, we're looking here at the last 24 hours of Jesus' life before he's placed on the cross. So Luke chapter 22, we saw uh, right here beginning verse number 24. And here's what Jesus says, as they're still sitting, and last week we, we looked at the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper, and we celebrate it every week in communion. And Jesus just gets through walking through that Last Supper there with his disciples. And as soon as that happens, we get in verse number 24. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Isn't pride, isn't it crazy? Jesus just got through saying, my blood is going to be shed. My body is going to be broken for you so that you can be unified. I've come and lived. I'm about to die for you. He's already told them several times that he's going to be raised back to life so they can experience life. They've heard this for years. They've seen him work miracles. They've seen him teach. They've seen him raise to life dead people. And he's here saying, I'm about to get me put to death. And they say, cool. But like, after you're dead, like, which one of us is going to be the greatest? Like, what in the world? We see here through these first five or six verses this. The one serving is actually greater than the one being served. The perspective of Christ's model is different than the model that we have as his created beings. 
So they, they were like, hey, let's, let's start this debate, which is kind of crazy. You're sitting across, laying on your side, across the table from a guy who says, hey, yeah, let's play this game. Let's play this little comparison game. Let's see who the greatest is. All right, everybody at the table, raise your hand if your mom was a virgin when you were born. Raise your hand. Got that one. Raise your hand if you can go water skiing without a boat. Nobody? All right, raise your hand if you spoke the world into existence with just the word of your mouth. Anybody? So you would think that the disciples at this point would say, maybe we should try to figure out who the most humble is here because none of us are going to be Jesus. But we notice here the pride on full display, how blinding that pride is. So they begin this debate. And can I just for a second talk about the model that Jesus has? And we see in the other gospels that Jesus actually here washes his disciples' feet as a show of his humility, as the one serving. And if we see here in these verses, in verse number 25, and he said to them, the kings of the, of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and these in authority over them are called benefactors. He says, this is the model of the world. Those who have authority, those who exercise power, those who are in control, those who have the money, those who are benefactors, verse 26, but not so with you. The model of my kingdom is different. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest. We saw this back in Luke chapter 18, right? He said, come to me as little children. Have the faith of a child. Right before that in Luke chapter 18, we see where Jesus has two men praying. One is a Pharisee. He says, oh, that I would not be like everyone else. And the other one's a tax collector. And what does the tax collector say? Have mercy on me, O God. And he beat his chest, for I am a sinner. And Jesus says, be like that one, the one who understands his need for a savior. He says, be like the, the one who serves. Verse 27, for who is the greater, one who reclines at table? So is it us, or is it the one who is serving the table? And I imagine Jesus is saying this as he's washing the disciples' feet. Which one of you is the greatest? Is it not the one who reclines at the table, but... I am among you as the one who serves. So lest you think you're so great, are you greater than me? Are you greater than me? The one who is one with the Father? Philippians chapter 2, I'm reminded of this passage. He says here at the very beginning of Philippians 2, one of my favorite passages. He says, beginning of verse number 4, he talks about himself. Here's the humility of Christ. But in verse number 4, he says, Let each of you look not only at your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So this is the same mind of Christ who, verse number eight, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the model that Christ says, hey, come, act like me, look like me. The one who serves in the kingdom is actually he who is the greatest. So stop arguing among yourselves as to which one of you is the greatest. Can I just applaud us, applaud y'all at South Point? I've been the recipient of so much grace and mercy and compassion. Even this past week, we had several folks into our home to eat, and we were in the homes of others. Thank you for loving us well as one of your pastor's families. 
I heard even yesterday, there was, I talked to one of our brothers down in Locust Grove, and we talked a few weeks ago about being able to serve those who are in need, especially these unborn children. Now that more children are going to be born, we as a church should come alongside of these mothers and help partner with them and help take care of these children. Well, just this past week, one of our families down there received a few foster children into their home. And so I was talking to Jeremy, and he said, he said man, we, we need clothes. We need money. We need resources. Next thing I know, I get a text. He says, hey, who is this person? I don't recognize this name. And I was like, oh, yeah, this person goes to, goes to, goes to McDonough. He said, okay. I said, why are you wondering? I'm just curious. He said, well, they sent me a, a gift card, an Amazon gift card for a lot of money just for these children. I was like, man, that's, that's the family of God working together. Yesterday I was talking to Ashton, who's back here serving with our kids today, and, and Ashton said, hey, th- these kids that, uh, that the Harbin family got, they don't know how to fix their hair because they're different than us. And so Ashton said, you know what? I'm going to go down there for several hours and help Lauren fix these girls' hair. You know how much the church paid Ashton for that? Not much, am I right? <laughs> nothing. We're servants. We're slaves of Christ. We serve him because of what he has done for us. And he says, those are the ones who are going to receive great glory and honor in a kingdom that matters. Our glory and honor is not here, friends. It's in eternity. And we serve him because he served us, because he loved us first. So thank you, South Point. Then you look here at verse number 28, you would think that Jesus at this point, you would think over the past three and a half years, Jesus would have been fed up with these guys. But look at verse number 28, it's crazy. He doesn't roll his eyes, he doesn't, he's not mean to the disciples, he has no contempt. He's not like, man, you guys are so fickle, what is wrong with you? Verse 28, he says, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. He says, thank you, disciples, for staying with me in my trials. In the middle of them arguing about who's going to be the greatest on the eve of Jesus Christ's crucifixion. He says in verse 29, And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table, in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Because the kingdom of servants is reserved for those who understand their desperate need for mercy. They understand their weakness, not their strength. May we be a people who understands that. Then we keep going. We see secondly here, we have a part here about Peter. And so Peter, as we know, is both wholehearted and he's hot-headed. That's Peter. And we've seen this so far in the book of Luke, and we see it in other gospels as well. But Peter is important. He's, whenever the disciples are mentioned as in order their names, Peter's name is always first in all the gospels. In fact, uh, Jesus' name is mentioned most in all the Gospels combined, but the second most mentioned name of anyone in the Gospels is Peter's. Now, you may know Peter because he has uh, a a foot-shaped mouth. He has very little filter between what he's thinking and what he says. And so often, he's the one who is, he is most often rebuked by Jesus through the Gospels. But he's also the one that stands up for Christ the most throughout the Gospels. Peter was one of the inner three, Peter, James, and John. He's one of the special disciples. Peter actually walked on water. Remember that? Peter was there at the Mount of Transfiguration. He saw Christ glorified, 
And he saw Elijah and Moses there at the Mount of Transfiguration. So when we think about Peter, we're like, yeah, yeah, we can relate to Peter. He's that kind of guy. But think for a moment. If we look back at the very beginning of, of Luke, Luke is writing this gospel message to whom? What was his name? Theophilus. He's writing this to Theophilus. Now, imagine for a second if you're Theophilus. And this argument right here arises among the disciples. Who is the greatest? Who is Theophilus probably assuming is the greatest disciple? Probably Peter. None of the other ones walked on water. He was one of the three that was there at Transfiguration. He's one of the inner three. He's mentioned the most of all the disciples. But we see here, what does Jesus say to him? Beginning in verse number 31. He doesn't say, Peter, Peter, but he says, Simon. He says, Simon. Now, in order for us to to have a really great comeback story, you've got to go away for a bit, right? In order for you to come back strong, well, this is the part. Notice what Jesus says. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Whenever we come into Christ, we see this so often. We see it in the Old Testament with Abram, whose name became Abraham. We see it with Saul, whose name became Paul. Well, Simon was then given the name when he decided to follow Christ. When Christ called him, he said, I don't want you to be Simon anymore or Cephas. He says, I want to call you Peter. And so there's a lot in a name. There's a lot here when Jesus says, Simon. He says, I've called you from death to life, but you're thinking and you're acting like the old self. You're not thinking like the one I have called. You're thinking like this old man. He says, and Satan wants to sift you like wheat. Literally, it means to tear you apart. But sifting like wheat was not a huge deal. Sifting like wheat was really easy back in this time. And they would have understood that. So Jesus is saying, Satan wants to take advantage of you, and it's not going to be very difficult for him. This is going to be easy. And friends, when we partner with the enemy, with the evil one and demons, we are rebelling against creator God. In our sin, we are rebelling against the one who has saved our souls. We are acting and, like, and thinking like what we used to be before Christ saved us and redeemed us and called us unto himself. The power of Satan is very real. We've seen it all throughout the gospel of Luke. Today, Satan is not dead. His demons are not dead. They are active. They are alive. They are among us. They are around us. Be aware. I don't say that to scare you. I say that to encourage us to be vigilant. Satan wants to sift you like wheat. The enemy Satan is walking around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He wants to tear you apart. He wants to tear you from Christ. If you look at verse number 31, it's interesting. We don't really pick this up here in the, in the English translation, but the word you is used twice in verse number 31. And Jesus here is speaking to all the disciples, even though he addresses Simon first. He's saying Simon. But then he says, Satan wants to sift you like wheat. We know that he's speaking to the disciples because that you there in verse number 31, each time it's used, is in the plural sense. It's plural. In other words, Satan's not just coming for you, Simon. He's coming for all of you. All of you who are my followers. All of you who are my disciples. But then when you go to verse number 32, that you actually becomes singular. And now Jesus is speaking specifically to Peter. He says, but I have prayed for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, 
Strengthen your brothers. Does Jesus say, I guarantee you're not going to be sifted like wheat? Does he say that I, I pray that you won't be? No. He says, I pray that in the midst of you being sifted like wheat, that your faith will remain strong. And when you turn, when you have turned again, in other words, you are going to fall into the enemy's trap. You are going to be sifted. But I pray for you that when you have turned again, when you have repented, then you will strengthen your brothers. Christ knows he's going to fail. He says, even in the midst of that, in the midst of your failure, I am going to be faithful. So may your faith be strong in me. Your faith is not in not failing. Your faith is not in your strength. But in the midst of weakness, we recognize our need for his mercy, for his faithfulness. He says, when you repent, that's when I want your life to count for the sake of the kingdom. Like us, Peter was going to fail. And what happened when Peter failed? We, we know that what he does, he, the shame led him to what he knows. Peter knew fishing. He knew running a business. He runs to those things. He runs into hiding. Friend, Jesus knows that you are going to fail. And I would implore you, don't run into hiding. Don't run to those things that you know. Our struggle is that when we have failed, we actually don't believe that Jesus looks at us and says, I love you. We believe that we must act good enough, that we, we must do enough good things, and therefore we earn God's favor. The struggle for us is that when I failed my wife, that she's not going to look at me and say, I still love you. I still want to be with you. The struggle for us as a body of believers is that when you fail, you don't believe that we can look at you and say, I still love you. We still want you to be a part of us. And that's because we're placing more stake and more faith and more weight and more glory on what we do, our failure or success, rather than this, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Because of his faithfulness, he does not fail. He still loves you. Now, notice his response. Notice Peter's response. Verse number 33 he seems to be unfazed, undaunted by Peter's demand, sorry, Satan's demand to sift him like wheat. What does Peter say? Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. In other words, he's saying, Jesus, you don't know what you're talking about. I'm not going to turn away from you. I'm ready. I'm so strong. I can do this. I can fight my sin. I can stop looking at that. I can change the way that I think. I can change the words that I say. I can do that because if I do it, who gets the glory? I do. No, Jesus, you don't know what you're talking about. I don't need your faithfulness. I've got my strength. I'm not a failure. I'm strong. 
But Jesus says in verse 34, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times, deny three times that you know me. Real quick, as we look at these next few verses, we, we often think, it, and this doesn't really matter either way. It's not a theological issue. I'm not taking this as close-handed. It's not a salvific issue. But historically, when it says that the rooster crowed, there was what's known as a temple crier. And every three hours, uh, this man or woman would be on uh, literally a horn, and they would blow the horn. In other words, announcing, okay, the change of guard is happening there in the temple, and now we've reached a new part of the evening. I, historically, I don't think this is actually a, a chicken, a rooster that's crowing. Because if you look at other, uh, even religious writings, uh, like in the Mishnah, uh, this rooster that would crow, they use that same term for the temple crier. Also in Jerusalem, there were no uh, chickens allowed because they didn't want them to wander into the temple area and thus contaminate the area of worship. So this was probably a temple crier. Just quick side note. Even if it's a chicken or a rooster, that's fine. Either way, here's what we know. Here's why that's important, okay? Because what's going to happen is going to happen pretty quickly. It's going to happen in the middle of the night. This is still in the evening. Peter has just said, I'll go with you to prison and to death. By the time he denies Jesus, it's only a matter of hours away probably less than three hours, okay? So we go to verse number 54. So we've seen here that Peter's wholehearted and hot-headed. I want us to see in these last nine verses that we cannot follow Jesus from a distance. We cannot follow him from a distance. We are made to be intimate. We are made to be close with him. He has invited us in to crawl up into his lap. He welcomes us in. Verse 54 then they seized him, speaking of Jesus, and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following closely nearby because he had promised Jesus that he would not forsake him, that he would go to prison and even to death with him. And Peter was faithful to the promise that he had made to Jesus. Whose translation says that? It says, and Peter was following at a distance. Already, he says, ooh, you know what? I think I'm going to put a little bit of space in between me and Jesus. He's quickly disassociating himself from Jesus. Verse 56, verse 55. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. So he's there in the courtyard. Jesus is being tried. We have three encounters here, three denials. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light, and looking closely at him said, this man also was with him, talking about Jesus. But Peter denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. Verse 58, and a little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them, talking about his disciples. But Peter said, man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. How would he know this? Probably by Peter's accent. Jesus was from Galilee. He said, Peter's from Galilee. Look at this guy's accent. You must have been with Jesus. But Peter said, man, 
I do not know what you are talking about. So we see here, as Peter puts physical distance between him and Jesus, he's also putting spiritual distance between him and Jesus. At this point, he sees Jesus not fighting back. And Peter thinks, man, there's going to be no revolution. There's going to be no earthly kingdom. There's going to be no victory or glory here. So I might as well save my own skin. I'm getting out of here. I can't do this. A short window of time from when he said, Jesus, I will never leave you. I think what's ironic here, we saw this earlier in the book, is that Peter was the very first one who said, Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Remember that? Jesus said, yeah, these other folks say I'm this, and I'm you know, John the Baptist, I'm Elijah, come back, and I'm, I'm Moses, but who do you say that I am? Peter jumps in and says, you are the Christ. Here he quickly says, I don't even know him. What an incredible shift. And then we see the end of that, that verse right there that I was reading, verse 60. And as he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. This had to have been both a terrifying and a heartbreaking sound to Peter. Because he knew at this point that Jesus, the prophet, his words are accurate and trustworthy. And he thinks, oh man, I remember what Jesus said just a matter of hours ago. And I remember my failure. Verse 61, it gets even better, I guess, for the sake of the story, but much worse for Peter. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. We don't know the exact setup here, but as Jesus was going from one place to the next, being tried, being tortured, being beaten, at some point he turns and he's able to meet eyes with Peter. And Peter's there in the courtyard. The Lord turns and looks at Peter. And Peter then remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. So picture this scene. Peter denies Jesus for the third time. And it says, while he was speaking, immediately he hears the rooster crow. He thinks, oh man, he looks up. And him and Jesus, their gaze meet. Jesus, with his face and his head already bruised and bloody and beaten, looks up at Peter and their eyes meet. What do you think each one of those guys is feeling at that moment? If you were Jesus, what would you be feeling at that moment? You can help me out. Say it again. Betrayal, absolutely. What else? Shame. Hope. I imagine Jesus here is feeling a great deal of sadness. One of his best friends has just said, I don't even know him. A great deal of disappointment. Even though he knew what was going to happen, Peter was like, no, 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 no. But he did it. But yeah, I think Frank, I think he's has a great deal of hope here. He has a great deal of compassion because that's our Savior. Jesus doesn't say, Peter, I told you so. 
He doesn't have to. He simply looks at him. What do you think Peter is feeling in this moment? Anybody? Shame, yeah. Regret. I imagine the weight of his sin had just melted his heart. He thought, my failure is too much for me to bear. Christ had given me this name, the rock. He said, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. And now the rock is standing here. And he's crumbled, but to a pile of rubble. But this is where the story changes. Because it's with that glance, with that gaze, with that look from Christ that we see Peter's restoration begin to take place. We know this because the look of the Lord is not one of judgment for those who are repentant. It's one of hope. It's one of compassion. And here's what I want us to see right here this morning for Peter and for us is that here is a Lord who looks on us in our failure and refuses to cast us into a landfill for junk disciples. Maybe you need to hear that this morning. Maybe you think you don't need to hear that this morning. The Lord looks and he doesn't say, Peter, it! I can't believe I invested in you. No, he does not cast him aside. Because Jesus died for our sins in his faithfulness, Jesus pushes on. Because he is faithful, we are able to receive mercy in all of our failings, all of our sin, whenever we fall. And I would plead with you this morning, South Point, when you do sin, don't run away from Jesus. He wants to see you. He already knows you. He sees you perfectly in your sin and in your shame and your failure. And he sees you perfectly with his eyes of his compassion and his love. So run to him. Look in his eyes. That's the only way that we receive forgiveness and grace and mercy is not by looking to something else for satisfaction, but by looking to him, looking to his character, looking to his finished work, looking to his faithfulness. He promises to receive you with open arms. I didn't ask Kingston when he came and sat with me this morning, hey, Kingston, were you nice to all your friends so far this morning? Because he probably wasn't. Because I know my son. I didn't say, Kingston, when I told you this morning to get dressed, did you do it in a timely manner? No, because he lost video games for the rest of the day today as a punishment. <laughs> so he didn't do that. I didn't say, Kingston, why don't you have your shoes on? Because he didn't. I didn't say, Kingston, why is your hair out of place? He wanted to be with me. And I love him. Not based on what he had done this morning or this past week, but because he's mine. Run to the open arms of Jesus. This is where we see this comeback story, this story of redemption, of restoration here. Look at verse number 62 with me. It says, and he wept, he went out, and he wept bitterly. So I said we're going to compare and contrast these two, two stories of Judas and of Peter. We know that from Judas, 
His remorse did not lead him back to Jesus. Remorse was not enough. But Peter's repentance led him back into being one of Jesus' favorite people. He repented, he turned, and he turned toward Christ. And he was brought back into being a disciple, one with Jesus. You see, wickedness, Judas, wickedness receives condemnation. But weakness receives comfort. Weakness receives comfort. The invitation is here for us to trust that which we cannot care for ourselves to Jesus Christ. And that's our very souls. We cannot trust ourselves with our souls. And Jesus says, you can trust me. How does he earn our trust? By remaining faithful all the way to the cross, by paying the penalty that Judas deserved, that Peter deserved, that each and every one of us deserves. And he crawls up on the cross. He says, Father, forgive them. And then he cries, it is finished. It's done. It's paid for. And friends, that's good news. Good news says it is all done on your behalf. Good advice is, here's what you need to do. Look somewhere else. We offer good advice all the time. But Jesus offers good news. Peter failed him, and Jesus never failed. We failed Jesus, and Jesus will never, friend, listen, never fail us. Like Jesus said, because his words are accurate, true, trustworthy. After Jesus was placed on the cross, he was put in the ground for three days. And just like he said, he was raised to life three days later. Well, who was the first person to go and see Jesus come out of the grave? Who was one of the first people that Jesus talked to? It was Peter. It says that he ran to the tomb to see, and he looks in. He's like, man, Jesus is not here. And remember that Jesus had already appeared to, appeared to Mary, but then Jesus goes and talks to Peter. He wanted to be with him, the resurrected Lord. He brings him back in. And then we see this in John chapter 21, and this will be up on the screen. You don't have to turn here. But this is shortly thereafter. This is after Christ's resurrection. Notice here, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love him. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. Jesus said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? In other words, are you sure? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And Peter said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. What? What? You know that I love you? After you just got through denying me three times? A matter of days before? But Jesus, what does he say? You're a liar! No, he says, I've redeemed you. I'm going to restore you. He says, go and feed my sheep. You see, Peter had denied Jesus three times. Three times here, Jesus restores Peter. Three times, Peter now confesses Jesus. And three times, Jesus commissions Peter. We see this beautiful restoration process happen right here. 
So then a few days after this, a few weeks after this, Jesus ascends up into heaven. And we have 120 people. The second part of Luke is the book of Acts. Uh, Luke also wrote that as, um, as a second part. Here's the beginning of the church. What do we have at the very beginning of Acts? After Jesus ascends in Acts chapter 1 and verse number 8. He says, go out therefore and make disciples. At, at, at by the end of chapter 1, we have 120 believers in an upper room who are scared to death because they don't have Jesus anymore. Who do those 120 look to? For their, as their leader, they look to Peter. What's Peter doing here? He's feeding Christ's sheep. What's Peter doing there? He's strengthening the brothers. And we see, Jesus, we see Peter as the leader of the Jerusalem church, fully restored. We see in some of Paul's writings, we see that him and, uh, him and Peter got into some small theological differences. And even in the midst of that failure, Jesus uses Peter to write two books of the Bible, of his word. In the midst of his failure, Jesus is faithful. And Peter lives for his glory. At the end of his life, we know that Peter was, was they, the government was trying to convince him to deny Jesus. But finally, finally, Peter proves faithful. And Peter says, I'm not going to deny Jesus as Messiah and Lord. So here's what happens to Peter and to his wife. They take him and they say, we're going to put you to death. And Peter says, that's fine. That's what happened to Jesus. And they crucified Peter and his wife, not right side up, but upside down. And as Peter closed his eyes in death, Peter opened his eyes for the very first time. And what did he see? The face of Jesus. He saw the face of compassion. He saw a face of welcoming. He saw a face of mercy and of forgiveness and of grace. And it's because of Peter, it's because of the early church that we are gathered here this morning. It's because of Peter's faithfulness that was provided to him by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, that millions and possibly even billions know the name of Jesus. So we see this comeback story. We see the story of Peter. But recognize, friends, he's not the hero of this story. Because Peter, left to his own devices, is simply a failure. It's because Jesus Christ was faithful that his story could be redeemed and that he could be restored. And because Jesus' words always come true, know this, that in the midst of despair or failure, we can find hope that Christ is faithful and he will restore. No matter what the beginning of your story looks like, no matter what your life looks, up, looks like up until today, no matter what this past week looks like for you, no matter if you were in the throes of sin this morning, wherever you are, Jesus Christ welcomes you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we know it's the love chapter, but if you look there in verse number 12, Paul says, currently we see the love of Christ dimly, but one day we are going to see him face to face. That's what we're looking for. So as we look at Christ's face today and we know, man, I have denied Christ. I'm a failure. I have betrayed him. I have partnered with the enemy. 
know that when he looks at you, he welcomes you in because of his shed blood, because of his broken body on our account. There is judgment for the wicked, but Jesus promises to receive the weak. So wherever you are this morning, this week, in temptation and trial, in persecution, in pursuit of things of this world, in the midst of pride, I would challenge you to look to Jesus' face. He welcomes you in. He longs to embrace you. His arms are strong enough to save you. In him, there is hope. In him, there is forgiveness. Look to Christ. And the same hand that is strong enough to save you is the hand that was pierced. The same eyes that look at you with compassion and with an everlasting love are eyes that were beaten. The same blood that was poured out on the cross is a blood that covers us in our shame and in our sickness, in our failure. So that when the Father looks at us, he doesn't see us. He sees the finished, faithful work of Jesus Christ. So we're going to celebrate that this morning in this meal that's called communion. We are communing here with each other, saying, man, we're messed up. We're all broken. We're all failures. But Jesus Christ has faithfully paid the penalty of our sin. And we get to be in his presence spiritually this morning and physically for all of eternity. So this is a time of repentance for us, of turning from our sin, also turning toward our Savior with great hope. This meal is for those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ and in him alone. So if you have done that, I would invite you. If there's something between you and a brother or a sister, or if there's a sin that you just cannot repent of, friends, this meal is not for you. Repent of that sin first. Turn to Jesus. Receive his forgiveness. Family, you're invited to join us.